Mark chapter 14. What is this here? This is the Beit Hamikdash, the Temple Mount. This is as it stood. We don't have any photographs. You know, all those photographs were lost. Just kidding. There was no photographs ever taken of the temple. The best, best thing we have is uh, early rabbinic literature, historical literature from, from uh, Josephus and the rabbis describing what this looked like. And then we have archaeology as well. But this would have been a 36-acre plateau uh, built initially by uh, um, King Solomon and then ex expanded upon by King Herod. And we are kind of learning some of the geography of this. This is, this is the front door of the temple here. And it's facing east towards the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is over here. This is the Derek Hakoanim. This is the bridge that stretched over. Does anyone remember the name of this valley right here? The Kidron, yeah. It also sometimes was referred to as Gehinnom. Gehinnom. It's the town dump out here. This is where they would um, you know, just dump all the refuse. Uh, also sometimes criminals. Their bodies would just be thrown out if they wouldn't, would not be claimed. Uh, they would take their bodies and throw them into the trash here in, in the valley. It's sometimes called the Valley of the Shadow of Death because there's about 70 to 80,000 tombs right here uh, that you can go see still to this day. And then you've got a, a valley, a very steep valley down here that gets about three hours of direct sunlight every day. Uh, so it's a dark place. There would have been, you know, vultures and hyenas and fugitives and crazy people out there digging through trash. Would have been smoldering, you know, refuse and worms and maggots and all that. It would have been a terrible picture, right? And that became a physical representation of hell. And you remember, I think it was last week or week before last, I took a video of me standing. I was standing right there and filming across the valley and showing you all the tombs. And you guys remember that video I took? Um, and we talked about, uh, this is Solomon's Colonnade. Um, this is the lower city. And this is the upper city. You can see right there is the uh, gymnasium that was, would have been built by the Romans. And over here is the Antonia Fortress, where there was a garrison of Roman troops. Uh, this is the newer city up here. You know, when the Romans uh, actually made it into Jerusalem in 70 to destroy it, they were going to sack Jerusalem and level the temple. They actually broke through right here. They, they initially were coming in and they wanted to get through about right here and go ahead and claim the temple because then they had the high ground, but they were unable to do so. And they actually, when they finally did break through, they came through right here. Um, and then they eventually burned the temple and, and leveled it. But coming into the temple, you could come in through these southern steps here. These are called the southern steps and you could enter into Solomon's Colonnade. And then right here, you see this three-foot wall that goes around. This is a wall called the Soreg, and there were signs on there in multiple languages that says um, non-Jews or non-Israelites cross upon the pain of death. And basically, it was a, it was a point that if you were a non-Jew, you could not go any further. And that's, that's when um, Paul says he broke down the middle wall of separation. Um, he's talking figuratively, of, and that would, have, that would have come to their minds as a Soreg. Then you have inside, you have the court of women there. You have the court of the Levites, and the, the men could go into there and offer. The altar was right there. There was, at any given point in time, three fires burning on the altar. It was a massive altar. It was, I think, about, uh, I think it was upwards of 40 feet by 40 feet, if I'm not mistaken. Three fires burning on it continually on any given point in time. Big, big, plat big uh, platform up here. So um, that's a little bit of the crash course of the temple there. This, these are the southern steps. 
um, that are leading up to the Solomon's Colonnade. These are the steps if you and I want to go to the temple. These are the steps we would likely ascend into the, the, the gates here, the temple. There's 15 steps, and as you're ascending those steps, you would, you would be flanked by a Levitical choir. Hundreds of Levites singing. And what would they be singing? They would be singing these psalms, these special psalms that were the songs of ascent. So as you're walking up, picture that all these you know, beautiful voices singing out, you know, like, like basically a bunch of chucks singing, <laughs> like all these different melodies and harmonies and stuff, singing in the, in the original language, the psalms of ascent. And we'll talk about here in a minute what those are. But I want to go through a quick history of Passover. How many of you celebrated Passover in the room? Most of you. Excellent, excellent. So Passover is a holiday today that commemorates this event that was the liberating of the Israelites from Egypt. Do you remember the story? And what was the original command, the original Passover? They had to bring a lamb. They had to purchase a lamb, bring it into their homes. For four days, they had to examine it and watch it, see if it had any issues or any defects. They had to slaughter the lamb, take some of the blood, put on the doorposts of their homes, right? And then a destroyer would pass over their home, would not affect their home. By doing so, they basically became covenant members of the house of the, the, the people of Israel. They proclaimed the God of Israel as their God, um, and they ate the lamb. Remember, uh, they had to eat the lamb uh, there in their home. They couldn't leave their homes. They had to make sure they eat all of it. If uh, you didn't have a lamb, you could borrow some lamb from your neighbors. <laughs> you could share. You could you know, get your extended family together and share that lamb. And then the following morning at sunup, you had to be ready to go, right? You had to have your belt on, your, your staff in your hand, your sandals on your feet. You had to be ready to bug out, right, of Egypt. And you left quickly. You were thrown out of Egypt. And a lot of people came out with the Egyptians called the mixed multitude. Uh, they were non-Israelites that, that pledged their allegiance to the God of Israel. And they left Egypt. Well, that didn't happen every year. You know, that was just a one-time thing. However, God said to the people of Israel in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16, Hey, I want you to bring this sacrifice on the altar in the temple every year on the anniversary of that happening. This sacrifice, you're actually going to name the Passover sacrifice. It's actually going to be called the Pesach. And he actually says, you know, this is the sacrifice that the head of the household is going to bring. This is the one sacrifice that you would bring. You'd buy a lamb or a goat and you would bring it into the temple. And you could, as the head of household, sacrifice and slaughter this lamb. There in the presence of the Levites. And the blood was then taken, collected, and put on the altar. And then you would take that lamb home and you would eat that lamb. So over time, um, this became a very big uh, celebration in the land of Israel and city of Jerusalem. This was one of the three Shalosh Regalim, the pilgrimage holidays. So if you're a Jewish male or if, you're, if, you, if you've pledged your allegiance to the God of Israel, you would go to Jerusalem on Passover. You would... Find someone in the immediate vicinity, you would buy a lamb from them, or you would travel with your own. You could do that. You would buy your lamb, and you would bring it up to the altar and to the temple. And there would be hundreds of Levites and Kohanim. That were, it was all hands on deck. And they had a very um, methodical way of slaughtering all these tens of thousands of lambs, would probably be. The city of Jerusalem would triple in its population during this holiday. So the Passover is a sacrifice that was offered on the altar. It wasn't a day. It wasn't like there's Passover is like one day, and then you have these like seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover was the offering that was brought, and 
as soon as you brought that offering, let's say you brought it at the time of the minka or the ma'ariv, like let's say, you know, three, four, five, six o'clock, you know, it's probably a long line. By the time you made it up there, you brought that Passover offering on the 14th of Nisan, but a couple hours later, when the sun goes down, it becomes the 15th of Nisan. You're eating that, that sacrifice that you brought with your family, if they came with you. You're eating that in the 15th of Nisan. So it kind of straddles these two days. The Passover is not a day, it's just a sacrifice, and it takes you into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Chag Hamatzot. And that's how we should look at it. Well, it's only natural that if you take this Passover lamb to the temple and you offer it on the altar, and that is a very special meal that you're about to partake. That's like a covenantal meal that you're about to eat. It's only natural, you know, are you going to go out to, uh, to like a street corner and just like dig into that lamb and just be like, hey, anybody want some of this lamb? You know, like get some lamb for your lamb. No, you're probably going to find lodging for the night ahead of time. And you're probably going to invite your family and say, hey, I'm going to go up to the go up to the altar. You know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go through a ritual, ritual bath versus a mikvah. And I'm going to bring our lamb up as our representative, of our family's offering to the temple. And then let's meet back here and we're going to eat the Passover in this in this lodging place. OK, and then you would have a very elaborate banquet meal. So maybe the the women of the family are at home and they're preparing like a very special occasion. They're lighting candles and they're getting ready for, you know, all this, this, this banquet to happen. He's about to bring the Passover lamb. It's a one, once in a year thing. He's about to bring it into this space here and we're about to eat of that. It's a very, it's a very special occasion. It's not just something we do flippantly. So out of that birthed this ritual that we call a Seder. And a Seder, it's from the same word that we get, we call this book right here, Siddur. It means order, order. So we would get into the home, into the space where we're going to eat our Passover lamb. And we have one job to do, eat the lamb and then retell the story of the original Passover. We want to recount that. We want to keep that going, that collective memory in our nation. We want to keep that going from generation to generation. So over time, how did we do that? We formulated all these little symbols and these tangible objects that help teach us this lesson. So you get things like, you know, bitter herbs, you get things like salt water, you get things like a, a bone, a, a, a lamb bone, a lamb shank, and you get wine and you get matzah, you get unleavened bread and these crackers and you eat them. And these like all these little tangible symbols that are like lessons that help us remember what he did in Egypt. Okay. There's sometimes this is confusion. Sometimes people think, okay, do I have to take the blood and do I have to take any kind of blood and put it on my doorpost? No, don't do that today. Don't do that. That was a one-time thing. Okay, that didn't continue on year after year after year. That wasn't a, that wasn't a subsequent command that you do that every year. Nor was there a subsequent command now that there's no altar that you bring a Passover offering. You don't do that anymore either. We're actually forbidden to do that. Okay. So this meal, this banquet meal, became called a seder, and the Mishnah records for us what that may have looked like over time as it evolved over time. And here we have a, a quote from a famous rabbi by the name of Gamliel. How many of you heard of Gamliel? Who was he? He was Paul's teacher, Paul's teacher. He would say anyone who did not discuss these three matters on, the, on Passover, meaning as you're eating the, the, the Pesach lamb, they have not fulfilled their obligation. You must discuss the Pesach lamb, you must discuss why we're eating matzah, and you must discuss the bitter herbs. When one mentions these matters, he must elaborate and explain on them. 
The Pesach lamb is brought because the omnis, omnip, omnip, I'm sorry, omnipresence passed over, he Pesach, the houses of our forefathers in Egypt. As it is stated that you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Pesach offering, for he passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. Rabbi Gamliel continues to explain, the reason for the matzah is because our forefathers were redeemed from Egypt, as it is stated, and they baked the dough that they took out of Egypt as cakes of matzot, for it was not leavened as they were thrown out of Egypt and could not wait, neither had they prepared for themselves any victual, which is like they, they didn't allow the bread to rise, basically. The reason for bitter herbs is because the Egyptians embittered the lives of our forefathers in Egypt, as it is stated, and they embittered their lives with hard work in mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field and all the service that they had made them serve with the rigor. That's Exodus 1.14. Each and every generation, each and every generation, a person must view himself as though he's personally leaving Egypt. As it is stated, and you shall tell your son on that day, saying, it is because of this which the Lord did for me when I came forth from Egypt. That's Exodus 13.8. So in every generation, Gamliel says, each person must say, this is what the Lord did for me, and not this is what the Lord did for my forefathers. Therefore, we are obligated to think, praise, glorify, extol, honor, bless, revere, and laud the one who performed for our forefathers and for us all these miracles. He took us out from slavery to freedom, from sorrow to joy, from mourning to a festival, and from darkness to great light, and from enslavement to redemption. And we will say before him, hallelujah. And at this point, he goes on to say, one recites the Hallel, and that is said on all joyous days. And what is the Hallel? The Hallel is a collection of Psalms, Psalms 113 to Psalm 118. And then it's customary as you're in Jerusalem after you've eaten the Pesach lamb, the meal, you go back out. You go to the temple and you recite the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are Psalms 120 to 134. So some, some people would say, okay, as you're, you're ascending these, these steps here, there's, you, you sing a psalm with the Levitical choir and you ascend each step corresponding with each psalm, the Psalm of Ascent. You get to the top and you sing one, Psalm 134. If you um, want, you can go back and read those at a later time. We're not going to get to it today, but that's kind of a picture of what, this, what the Seder meal and how it evolved over time. Much of what we get today, like when we, if we were to go to an Orthodox Seder today and what we see, much of that, that the, the rituals associated with that Seder, they probably came about in about the 12th century, Okay. Just like anything, you know, like Thanksgiving, you have your own Thanksgiving traditions in your own family. And over time, that kind of evolves, right? Some of them get dropped off. Some of them, sometimes you add a tradition to your Thanksgiving celebrations. The same thing with the Seder meal. Sometimes it kind of evolves. And what we see today came about, like I said, about the 12th century. But nonetheless, um, we celebrate Passover and we have this meal. We have this Seder meal. Do we do it with the lamb that was brought to the altar? No, because there's no altar, right? And even it's, it's Jewish law that you actually don't even eat lamb on that night so as not to confuse it with the actual lamb that was brought on the altar. So many times they see chicken or something like that. But it's important in the absence of the lamb that we talk about the lamb. You see what I'm saying? 
So you have to talk about the lamb. That's why there's a bone, a lamb bone on your table as you celebrate Passover, because it reminds you, oh, why is that bone there? Oh, because we used to bring a, a Pesach offering on this night when the temple stood. And it's a good reminder for us to do that. So we talk about the lamb. So I wanted to set that stage a little bit for you as we get into Mark 14. Oh, here's the southern steps here in modern times. You can go there today and you can actually walk up those steps. They've, they unearthed them. I believe in the 60s they unearthed those steps. But there would have been gates here and gates there. So you can, a lot of tourist groups, they'll actually go there and they'll read the Psalms of Ascent as they're ascending those steps. Kind of cool, huh? So we're going through Mark 14. And we've been traveling along with Yeshua and his disciples. And here we find ourselves towards the end of his ministry. And he's poured into these 12 disciples. And we find ourselves, it's very fitting, at the season called Passover. And Israel is in a very uh, tense time. The Romans are occupying the land of Israel. And they know that if a rebellion is going to break out, it's going to probably break out at Passover. And it's probably going to emanate from the city of Jerusalem. So naturally, the Romans beef up their presence in the city of Jerusalem. And they're on high alert right now. And Yeshua comes into town here. And remember, we read a couple weeks back that he actually purged the temple leading up to this time. We talked about the significance of that. And um, he comes into town on Passover. And look at, look at Mark 14 with me. And we're going to read a little bit. And then we're going to go jump around to some different gospels here. He says, it was now two days before Pesach. That is the festival of Matzah. And the head Kohanim and the Torah teachers were trying to find some way to arrest Yeshua. And to surreptitiously have him put to death. For they said, not during the festival or the people will riot. In other words, they're trying to do it secretly. While he was in Beit Anya, in the house of Shimon, a man who had sara'at or leprosy, he was, and he was eating, a woman came with an alabaster jar of perfume. Pure oil of nard, very costly. And she broke the jar and poured the perfume over Yeshua's head. But some there angrily said to themselves, why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for a year's wages and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But he said, let her be. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want to, you can help them, but you will not always have me. What she could do, she did do. In advance, she poured perfume on my body to prepare it for my burial. Yes, I tell you that wherever in the whole world this gospel is preached, what she has done will be told in her memory. Then Yehuda, Judas from Kiriot, who was one of the 12, went to the head Kohanim, the priest, in order to betray Yeshua, they were pleased to hear about this and promised to give him money. And he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Yeshua. On the first day for Matzah, when they slaughtered the lamb for Pesach, Yeshua's Talmudim asked him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for your meal or your Seder? And he sent two of his Talmudim with these instructions. Go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And whichever house he enters, tell the owner that the rabbi says, 
Where is the guest room for me? Where I am to eat the Pesach meal with my Talmudim? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparation there. The Talmudim went off, came to the city, ready. Uh, um, Talmudim came to the city and found the things just as he had told them they would be. And they prepared for the Seder. When evening came, Yeshua arrived with the twelve. As they were reclining and eating, Yeshua said, Yes, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. They became upset and began asking him, One after the other, you don't mean me, do you? It's one of the twelve, he said to them, someone dipping in the dish with me. For the Son of Man will die, just as the Tanakh says he will. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better if he had not been born. While they were eating, Yeshua took a piece of matzah, and he made a bracha, and he broke it. He made a blessing. He gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Also, he took a cup of wine, and he made a bracha. And he gave it to them. He said, he said, this is my blood, which ratifies the new covenant. My blood shed on the behalf of many people. Yes, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again until the day I drink new wine and the kingdom of God. I taught uh, like maybe a couple of years ago about what this, the wine of the kingdom is all about. Come see me if you'd like a copy of that teaching. After singing the Hallel, what were the Hallel? The psalms, the psalms they would sing as they climbed those steps. They, they, went out to, uh, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Yeshua said to them, You will all lose faith in me, for the Tanakh says, I will strike the shepherd dead, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you into the Galil. And Kepha said, Peter said to him, Even if everyone loses faith in you, I won't. Yeshua replied, Yes, I tell you, that this very night before the rooster crows twice, you would disown me three times. A lot of people theorize that this the rooster wasn't actually a rooster, but it was the temple crier that would cry in the morning and wake the city up, wake up the Levites. But Kepha kept insisting, even if I must die with you, I will never disown you. And they all said the same thing. They went to a place called Gat Shemen, which translates to the place of the oil press. And Yeshua said to his Talmudim, sit here while I pray. He took with him Kepha, Yaakov, Yochanan, and great distress and anguish came over him. And he said to them, My heart is so filled with sadness that I could die. Remain here and stay awake. Go on a little farther. And he, going on a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, all these things are possible for you. Take the cup away from me. Still not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Kepha, Shimon, are you asleep? Couldn't you stay awake for one hour? Stay awake and pray that you will not be put to the test. The spirit indeed is eager, but human nature is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. His eyes were so heavy that they didn't know what to answer him. The third time he came and said to them, for now, go on sleeping. Take your rest. There, that's enough. The time has come. Look, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. Here comes my betrayer. While Yeshua was still speaking, Yehudah, Judas, one of twelve, came, and with him a crowd carrying swords and clubs from the head Kohanim, the Torah teachers, and the elders. The betrayer had arranged to give him a signal. He said, the man I kiss is the one you want. Grab him and take him under guard. As he arrived, he went right up to Yeshua, said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hold of Yeshua and arrested him. But the one, the people standing nearby drew, uh, one of the people standing nearby drew his sword and struck at the servant of the Kohen Gadol, cutting off his ear. Yeshua addressed them. 
So you came out to take me with you, swords and clubs, the way you would a leader of rebellion. Every day I was with you in the temple court, teaching, and you didn't seize me then? Let the Tanakh be fulfilled. And they all deserted him and ran away. There was one young man who did not try to follow him, uh, who, who did try to follow him, sorry, but he was wearing only a nightshirt. And when they tried to seize him, he slipped out of a nightshirt and ran away naked. With my luck, that would be me. Huh? That's how I would go down in the Bible. <laughs> they led Yeshua to the Kohen Gadol, with whom all the head Kohanim and the elders and the Torah teachers were assembling. Kepha followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the Kohen Gadol, where he sat down with the guards and warmed himself by the fire. The head Kohanim and the whole Sanhedrin tried to find evidence against Yeshua so they might have him put to death, but they couldn't find any. For many people gave false evidence against him, but their testimonies didn't agree. Some stood up and gave this false testimony. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another one not made with hands. Even so, their testimonies didn't agree. The Kohen Gadol stood up in front and asked Yeshua, Have you nothing to say to the accusers and the accusations these men are making? But he remained silent and made no reply. Again, the Kohen Gadol questioned him, Tell us plainly, are you the Mashiach? He said, I am. Very powerful words, right? Moreover, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of Hagiburah, the, the power, coming on the clouds of heaven. At this, the head, the, 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 I'm sorry, the Kohen Gadol tore his clothes, which isn't kosher, by the way. He said, why do we still need witnesses? You heard him blaspheme. What is your decision? And they all declared him guilty and subject to the death penalty. Then some began spitting at him. And after blindfolding him, they started pounding on him with their fists and saying, let's see you prophesy. As the guards took him, they beat him too. Meanwhile, Kepha was still in the courtyard below. One of the serving girls of the Kohen Gadol saw Kepha warring himself, took a look at him and said, you were with the man from Netzeret, Yeshua. But he denied it saying, I haven't the faintest idea what you're talking about. He went outside into the entryway and a rooster crowed. The girl saw him and started telling the bystanders, this fellow is one of them. He again denied it. A little later, the bystanders themselves said to Kepha, you must be one of them because you're from the Galil. As he began to invoke a curse on himself as he swore, I do not know this man you're telling me about. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Then Kepha remembered what Yeshua had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. Throwing himself down, he burst into tears. We'll come back to Kepha um, when we get into a resurrection story. But I want to zoom in on this place of Bethany where he's having this last supper. So this is a map here of Jerusalem. Uh, you see, this is the Temple Mount we just talked about. And there would have been a road that came down called the Jericho Road. And if you took that east up over the Mount of Olives, which is right here, and then down into this valley, Bethany is right here. It's not even two miles away. It's a really short walk. It's just kind of a strenuous walk. But what does the name of this town mean? Uh, a lot of scholars say it's Aramaic or Hebrew in its origin. Maybe means the house of humility or the house of affliction. You know, on Passover, not Passover, on Yom Kippur, we're told to afflict ourselves. And it uses the verb ana, to make yourself low, to make yourself humble on Yom Kippur. Well, this could be derived from the Beit Anya or Beit Anna, the, the house of humility or house of affliction. Can we zoom in this morning real quick on this story and go with me to some different accounts of the story of the Last Supper? 
Luke 7, 36 is where I'm going to take you next. Luke 7, 36. Luke 7, 36. Remember, we got um, three Gospels. What do we call those three Gospels that are all kind of in agreement with each other? The Synoptic Gospels. The really interesting thing about this, this interaction is it's recorded in all four Gospels. All four have a perspective on this. And let's look at it real quick. Luke 7, 36. And we're going to read to verse 50 and then stop. One of the Pharisees invited Yeshua to eat with him. And he went into the home of the Pharisee and took his place at the table. A woman who lived in that town, a sinner, and it's going to use the Greek amartolos, which is like a blatant sinner, an active sinner, who was aware that he was eating in the home of the Pharisee, brought an alabaster box of very expensive perfume, stood behind Yeshua at his feet and wept until her tears began to wet his feet. Then she wiped his feet with her own hair, kissed his feet and poured perfume on them. A little bit different, isn't it? When the Pharisee who had invited him saw what was going on, he said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he would have known who was touching him and what sort of woman she is, that she is like a sinner. Yeshua answered, Shimon, I have something to say to you. Say it, Rabbi, he replied. A certain creditor had two debtors. The one owed ten times as much as the other. When they were unable to pay him back, he canceled both of their debts. Now which of them will love him more? Shimon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Your judgment is right, Yeshua said to him. Then turning to the woman, he said to Shimon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me water for my feet, but this woman has washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but from the time I arrived, this woman has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but this woman poured perfume on my feet. Because of this, I tell you that her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Because she loved much. But someone who has been given only a little, loves only a little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. At this, those eating with him began saying among themselves, who is this fellow that presumes to forgive sins? But he said to the woman, your trust has saved you. Go in peace. This is the village of Beit Anya here. This was photographed in 1890, and it was colorized later. 1890, this is what Bethany looked like. This is the hometown of Lazarus. And if you go there today, uh, the Arab-speaking people there that live in this village, which is obviously much more established now, they call it the village of, of Lazarus. Huh. Let's look at one more interaction here. One, uh, I'm sorry, two more interactions. Luke 26. I'm sorry, Matthew 26. I cannot get my words together. Matthew 26. Flip over there. Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13. I want to look at this from all angles, in other words. Matthew 26, 6 through 13. Matthew 26, 6 through 13. Yeshua was in Beit Anya, at the home of Shimon, the man who had leprosy. A woman who had an alabaster jar filled with very expensive perfume approached Yeshua while he was eating and began pouring on his head. When the Talmudim saw it, they became angry. Why this waste, they asked. This could have been sold for a lot of money and given to the poor. But Yeshua, aware, to, aware of what was going on, said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. She poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. Yes, I tell you that throughout the whole world, wherever this good news is proclaimed, what she has done will be told in her memory. Then one of the twelve, the one called Yehuda from Kiryot, 
he went to the head Kohanim and he said, what are you willing to give me if I turn Yeshua over to you? They counted out 30 pieces of silver and gave them to Yehuda. From then on, he looked for a good opportunity to betray him. And then we get into, it says on verse 17, on the first day for matzah, they, they have the last supper basically there in the upper room. Let's look at one more, John 12. Go with me to John 12. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 12. So how many pieces of silver did Judas get? 30. 30. John 12, 1 through 8. And how much money was this perfumed valued at? Anybody catch that? A year's wages. A year's worth of wages. A lot of money. John 12, verses 1 through 8 is what we're going to read. Six days before Pesach, Yeshua came to Beit Anya, where Lazarus had lived. The man Yeshua raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner there in his honor. Martha served the meal, and El Azar was among those, Lazarus was among those that were eating at the table with him. Miriam, what's her name? Miriam. Interesting, we get a name for the first time, don't we? Miriam took a whole pint of pure oil of spike nard, which nard is a Hebrew word, by the way. It's a very expensive um, perfume. She poured it on Yeshua's feet and wiped his feet with her hair so that the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But then one of his Talmudim, Yahuda, Judas from Kiriot. So who got indignant and mad? Yehuda. Judas. The one who was about to betray him said, this perfume is worth a year's wages. Why wasn't it sold and the money given to the poor? Now he said this not out of concern for the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the common purse and used to steal from it. He was an embezzler, in other words. Yeshua said, leave her alone. She kept this for the day of my burial. You always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So we know a little bit more about Judas. We know a little bit more about Mary and why they did this. You know, it reminds me of Song of Solomon, which is a love story between God and his people Israel. Song of Solomon 1.12 says, While the king was at his table, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. Maybe she thought about that as she's, as she's breaking open this alabaster jar. But I want to look at 30 pieces of silver. Why 30? Is there significance there? If we look at Exodus 21.32, turn with me there if you, have, if you have the desire. Exodus 21.32. It might make a little bit more sense of why it was 30. What's going on here? Maybe there's a theory Exodus 21, 32. Exodus 21, 32. What is it with 30? Exodus 21, 32. Exodus 21, 32. If the ox gores a male or a female slave, its owner must give their master 12 ounces of silver. What, do you, what does yours say? 30 shekels of silver. And the ox is to be stoned to death. So, in other words, for a slave, they are, they are valued at 30 pieces of silver. So Yeshua's death could be seen as like a ransom, the price paid to secure a slave's freedom, and that the use of the blood money to buy a burial ground for foreigners in Matthew 27, 7, may hint at the idea that Yeshua's death not only is like a ransom paid to secure a slave's freedom, but also salvation possible for all the peoples of the world, including the Gentiles. There could be a second dimension to this, however. Look at Exodus 12, 21. Exodus 12, 21. 
Exodus 12, 21. Then Moshe called for all the leaders of Israel and said, Select and take lambs for yourselves, for your families, and slaughter the Pesach lamb. So there's a play on words that you can't see here in the English. But when it says to uh, select and to take, it's actually using the verb mishchu, which is connected to the name Moshe. Mishchu, Moshe. Moshe means to draw out, to entice from. So he's saying, I want you to select, I want you to draw out and take you lambs according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. How often did... The, the, how often did the disciples and the priests attempt to draw out of Yeshua whether or not he was the Messiah? In John 10, they said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Matthew 26 says, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us plainly if you are the Messiah, the son of God. Now, for those who did not have a lamb, they were instructed to buy one and kill it for Passover. Rashi, the great Jewish commentator, says that in, on Exodus 20, verse 21, the word take there implies that every Israelite family is to purchase or acquire a lamb if they do not already have one. Matthew 26 says, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. So in the story of Yeshua's betrayal, even those without the lamb went out to purchase one for Passover according to their families. So the betrayal of Yeshua for silver could be seen as an acquisition or a purchase of a blemishless lamb for the house of the Lord. Those are just two dynamics of, of the betrayal of Yeshua. But I want to zoom in even further on the story of Mary, who we just learned her name, and Judas. Why are these stories, why are these two characters butted up against each other? Why are they right after each other? In every instance, I think we're supposed to take something from that. What we have developing in the story of Mary and Judah, Judas is like a juxtaposition that we're supposed to look at and examine. Mary, it is implied, is a prostitute, a blatant sinner. She's a sex worker. And as a sex worker, she is the fulfillment of the Proverbs 7 woman, as, as opposed to the Proverbs 31 woman. Read Proverbs 7 if you have time today. She says, the Proverbs 7 woman says, I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt, and I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. The Proverbs 7 woman leads others into sin and is not discreet about it. She pursues the godly man and seeks to make a living off of his downfall in sin. The same pricey perfume that Mary would wear while walking the market streets and the alleyways of the city is the same pricey perfume she willingly broke open and poured on the feet and on the head of, our, of her Savior. In doing this bold act, she's making a statement. I am taking everything that I was, everything that earned my ungodly living, everything that brought me pleasure, but simultaneous shame, all of that which holds me in bondage to a prior master I'm declaring you king over it. My life, though to the world seems profitable, successful, is now broken. It's sinful and it's unholy. It is bringing chaos and dysfunction into the homes of fellow Jews. I'm going to pour it all out as an offering and hold nothing back. This is a picture of 
true brokenness and true repentance. If we weren't learn one thing from the story of Judas, it is that the solid rabbinic training and constant exposure to the supernatural realm, time and tenure, and, and the outward, outward display of righteousness, it does not immunize one from committing some of the most grievous and deplorable atrocities imaginable. In other words, this side of the kingdom, no amount of Torah learning can make us untouchable by the enemy and his ability to stoke the flames of our flesh. Judas, this money-embezzling disciple of the promised Messiah of Israel, threw it all away for a couple hundred bucks. Who is to say that you or I wouldn't do something far worse for even less? The lesson of Judah is this. Time and the chairs in which you are currently sitting or me standing up here serving in ministry or in leadership or living a life of constant sacrifice to God does not mean you or I are above or beyond turning our backs on Messiah in action or in deed and falling in a very public and disgraceful way. This is the lesson we learned from the life of Judas. And each of us, and each of us in Gabe Rutledge is the potential to be broken, to be a broken, repentant Mary or a falsely righteous embezzling traitor who at every turn looks for something to gain by being associated with Yeshua. But alas, what Judas meant for evil, God meant for good. Yeshua had to suffer and die to atone for and to fix the ever-plaguing problem of sin and death. While Judas lined his pockets, the plan of redemption was being inched closer and closer to its fulfillment. When we fall, we can never fall beyond the reach of God's sovereignty and his grace. After all, Paul says, there is no power in the sky above or the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Messiah. And as Yeshua uttered those famous last words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He was speaking to Judas. He was speaking to Gabe Rutledge. He was speaking to you. As we raise the hammer to strike the nail one more time, as we deny his kingship three times in one night, or as we forget the promise that death has no hold on those who trust and believe, and that the grave in which Yeshua's body once laid still sits empty. So how fitting in the season of Passover, an offering in a season themed around true and final redemption from bondage, the Savior and the Lamb of God came, he suffered, and he died to secure you and I such eternal freedom. So while we celebrate Passover, we don't do it with a lamb that's been offered on the altar in the temple. We have to remember we have a lamb of far greater value. And as we celebrate the feast of commemoration and have our Seder meal with our family, may we do it now in remembrance of him. I'm going to pray and then we'll do questions and answers. Father, I thank you that you've given us these two examples. And I just ask that you would just crucify my flesh and that you would just break me and humble me to be a man that is repentant 
and not holding on to the old sinful nature of Gabe Rutledge, but someone that is just weeping and pouring everything that I am out to you. We thank you that your son died and added such a deep, rich meaning on top of an already beautiful celebration on Passover. May we honor him. May we honor his sacrifice. In Yeshua's name, amen.